0: It's great to be with you today, and uh, Wendy and I arrived on Friday, and so um, we've been talking about coming up here for Now we've got your attention. (laughs) Wow. So we've been talking about coming up here since last summer, and uh, really uh, talking with Pastor Keith, and he said, well, you can't come until the snow stops flying. And so we landed on Friday afternoon and the snow was still flying. And so I didn't know if we were supposed to land and stay or not, but regardless, uh, really happy to be here with you today and commend to you, Pastor Keith and Kathy and all of those who work with your church here. Uh, Great to be here. I've been to Williston before. I've landed in Bismarck when we couldn't land in Rapid City, believe it or not, one day and yet uh, really hadn't been in town, just didn't even leave the airport at about midnight one night when we had to make a, a refueling stop here. But really good to be with you, and uh, just to let you know a little bit about the university, the University uh, Oklahoma Wesleyan University is part of the same denomination that Cornerstone Community Church belongs to, and it is uh, the School of the West, if you believe it or not, it is something where we had campuses back in the day in Pasadena, Colorado Springs, Vale, Kansas, and now we're in Bartlesville, Oklahoma. And there's a long story about why we're in Bartlesville that I'll tell you briefly. The chairman of the board back in the mid-50s was headed to Dallas, actually, to find property and merge all of these campuses together. He had a flat tire in Bartlesville, Oklahoma. Couldn't get a tire for three days. Talk about supply chains. And found this huge estate owned by a very, very rich oil person who was selling the estate, and that is where our campus is today. He never made it to Dallas. And so uh, God uses flat tires. Remember that, especially if you're helping somebody with a flat tire. But we are a liberal arts school. It has nothing to do with being left or liberal. It means that you study and are developed as a critical thinker in a biblically-centered university in schools like business and nursing and ministry and education and arts and sciences as a matter of fact there are accreditors who will begin to analyze our school of education tonight through tuesday and so i have to uh, be on the phone this afternoon with accreditors creditors that get out the white gloves and inspect and make sure that we're meeting all of the criterion and actually i take those opportunities to witness to them For Jesus Christ. And our mission and our goal is to advance the kingdom of Jesus. We just happen to use education and sports and arts to be able to do that. And so anytime you hear or someone says to you, you know, there's no other Christian universities around that will honor Jesus, even mention his name, or perhaps even be biblically centered. There's a Hebrew word that you should respond with, and that word is baloney. (laughs) Okay? You didn't know that was Hebrew, but there's your lesson for the day. It really is a privilege for us to be there. We went to school there and found great value in our development in Christ as well as our education and went on from there. I am a pastor at heart. I pastored for 15 years. I worked as a denominational executive for another 15 years and I felt compelled to consider being a university president. They asked, and I was one of 119 candidates. People want jobs that they think are prestigious today. Prestige lasts about 30 seconds, and then you have to go to work. But regardless, um, happy to be there. Of that pool, I'm the only one who has never worked for a school. You don't get a trophy for that. But it is something where I'm delighted to be able to lead a faculty that is focused on Christ and coaches that are focused on Christ. And quite frankly, if they decide that they don't want to be uh, focused on Christ, then they'll work somewhere else. How's that? All right. So enough commercial. Happy to talk to you about that and anything else uh, that you would be interested in talking about. Um, But I'm here to preach. Fair enough? That's what you came for anyway. Enough infomercials. There is a scripture that I want to read to you and with you out of 2 Kings. Now, you might find it odd that I'm in the Old Testament two weeks after Easter, but I'm here to declare to you that the resurrection power of Jesus Christ is found in God the Father well before the resurrection ever happened, and His power is still available to us today. Amen? All right, let me repeat that for those of you who apparently didn't hear it. The resurrection power of Jesus Christ exists in God the Father of the Old Testament, and His power through His Holy Spirit that we'll celebrate at the end of May on Pentecost Sunday is still available for everyone today. Amen? Amen. You're getting warmed up. That's good. Here we go. 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 1. The wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, "'Your servant, my husband, is dead.'" And you know that he revered the Lord. But now his creditor is coming to take my two sons as his slaves. Elisha replied to her, how can I help you? What do you have in your house? Your servant has nothing there at all, she said, except a small jar of olive oil. Elisha said, go around and ask your neighbors for empty jars. Don't just ask for a few. Then go inside and shut the door behind you. And your sons pour oil into all the jars until each is filled. Put it to one side when it is filled. She left him and shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars to her and she kept pouring. When all the jars were full, she said to her son, Bring me another one. But he replied, There is not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. She went and told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil and pay your debts. You and your sons can live on what is left. Will you pray with me? Lord, this is your word, and we've come into your house. We've come in a certain way. We've come in with different thoughts, perhaps burdens, perhaps joys and victories. And we just simply pause and thank you for your word. We pray that it will be that double-edged sword able to penetrate joint and marrow and literally strike us straight in the heart. Lord, even though we've come in a certain way, help us to go home differently because we've been with you and your word, not a person, but your word has spoken to us. We pray all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. So... There are things that happen in life that once in a while you'll read a biblical passage and you'll wonder, just exactly how does this apply to me? I'd really like for you to focus on the question that Elisha asks this widow in this text. And that is, what do you have in your house? Now some people, when they hear that, they think that somebody is uh, only going to talk about money. That, That could be part of the topic. What do you have? It could be that you have encouragement or friendship that needs to be offered to someone as well, and that could be uh, somewhat a commodity, although I'd rather not talk about that being a transaction. I'd really like that to be something that's a relationship. It could be that you have skills that need to be utilized for the kingdom of God, and you have gifts that God has given you. Have you ever considered the fact that People have spiritual gifts even outside of Christ that God has given them. He gave them so that the church could be built up through them, but they're actually only using them to make money or have a career. And so we have this text that it's a good reminder for us, even though uh, you might say, you know, God didn't answer my prayer like uh, the widow's prayers were answered here. There's a really helpful reminder that I need all the time when I read an historical text. This is not a doctrinal text. This is not something that you should be able to do a mathematical equation with. You shouldn't be able to take A plus B, and it will always equal C, right? So I know there's all kinds of new math today. I don't agree with it either, where 2 plus 2 equals 17. That's not what I learned. But regardless, it is something that we need this reminder, and just hang with me for a second. The Bible is about God. It's not about us. It relates to us. And and God really doesn't care what you think it should say. It says very direct things, very formidable things, very historical things, including the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, but we in the 21st century love to question it. We we love to find holes in it. We we love to, to, to take shots at it, if you will, and say, well, you know, that whole resurrection thing, I, I've never seen that happen before. As a young pastor, I had dreams that I was doing a funeral and, and people just popped right out of the casket back in Indiana in, a, in an open casket kind of thing. That was, that was kind of unsettling, you know. And, and, and no, I've never seen someone raised from the dead either, but he either did or he didn't. And my eternity is banked on that kind of truth or not. And so when you read a text like this, you might say, well, I had a lot of needs like this widow, and God didn't answer the way that he answered her. Be careful that you don't use this as a doctrinal text. It's not a doctrinal text. It's an historical text that will prove to us that the power of God is still available to every person. We just shouldn't put it in a box and say, God has to do this one certain thing. Are you with me? So we're going to look at this text. We're going to walk through it. And again, focus on that question. Even the title of the message today, if you love that kind of thing, is what do you have? What do you have? And what will you do with it as God allows you to possess that? The first thing that I love in this text is the desperation of the widow. So so the first question I would ask to myself and to you today is am I desperate for the Lord's help? Am I desperate for the Lord's help? One of our problems, especially in North America, I'm pretty sure it's uh, the standard here in Bismarck, as you've dealt with Snowmageddon this year, is that we can do some stuff. We can accomplish some things. We, we have some abilities. And, and we really need to back up the train when we talk about those abilities and think about the fact that God has given us the ability to have those abilities. I, I get in discussions quite a bit with people on airplanes, and they'll they'll talk about how self-made they are. After a while, they'll they'll talk about pulling themselves up by their, their their own bootstraps kind of mentality. And I and I'll ask them. I say, by the way, who gave you your brain? And it's not a common question, so they kind of think, well, I I developed my brain. I said, yeah, but who gave it to you? Well, I, I suppose if you got into you know creation and and even. Uh, Conception, maybe, maybe my mom, maybe my dad gave me my brain. You know, they get into that kind of discussion. And and well, who gave you the ability to develop that brain? Well, I developed it. Well, who gave you the ability to have the job that you have? Well, I, I earned the job that I had to interview for, and I have to perform, and I have all of the ability. You listen after a while in the world. And one of the things that we need to be reminded of each and every day, whether we have some catastrophic need like this widow did, or if things are going hunky-dory in our lives every day, is this fact. We should be fully dependent, even desperate, for the Lord's help. Every day. Every situation, even when things are going well, to give Him thanks and desperately praise His name. It's not a word that you use a whole lot with joy and with praise and with worship, But am I desperate for the Lord's help? This widow was desperate. Her circumstance made her desperate. I I would love to get beyond that, but this is the text, and this is what we're going to work through. The widow knew what she was facing. Here's what she was facing. She had a husband who I'm sure in her mind thought was doing the right things. We don't know why he died. We don't know how he died. He was a prophet in the Old Testament, and he died. And that happens. And I'm not trying to be crass or careless today, but there is even scripture that talks about the fact that a man or a woman lives for a while and then they die. And we know that in Bismarck included that there are cemeteries and that people die. People very, very close to me, including my first wife, died prematurely. You've had persons in your life die. She has her husband and he's gone. In this context, in her world, the only worth that she had really was the labor of her sons. So the creditor has come, apparently they bought too much at Christmas, they ran up their credit card debt, they had a lot of debt. We don't know how they did that, we don't know why they did that, we don't know what they bought and what they owed. It could have been land, it could have been cattle, it could have been all kinds of things. I doubt it was an Xbox or a new truck, but regardless, they had a lot of debt. And the creditor came to collect it. I kind of imagine that this rude creditor came to the funeral and said, you owe me a lot of money. I don't know that. I'm just using my imagination, not trying to be a heresy. And if you really want to stop listening now, you can. You have that choice. But regardless, they have a lot of debt. And the only way that it's going to be paid off is the creditor has come and he wants to be paid off. And the only thing that she thinks she has are her two sons. And we'll find out later, a small jar of olive oil, her sons would be enslaved, employed, if you will, by the creditor until the debt was paid off. He, they would have to go work on the farm. They would they would have to go work in whatever the industry was of the creditor and and pay the debt off. She, I don't write these rules. She could not work. It was forbidden for a woman in this context, in this realm of history, to be able to work an honorable job. She was going to lose her sons. She was going to lose her livelihood. and She actually eventually may even starve to death. We don't know that, but this is what's at stake. And so she goes to the holy man, Elisha. It wouldn't be like coming to Pastor Keith, although he's a holy man. You could try this, but this is a little bit of a different day, a representative of God of sorts in the Old Testament. And she goes to him and she knows that the high priest or even the holy men, the prophets, were to help the widows and the orphans. And she goes to them and says... I, I don't know what to do. I'm going to lose my sons. I'm going to lose everything that I have. I, I can't work. I'm surely going to die. All of this is in this context that we need to understand. And she becomes desperate. I don't think we need to get to this point where we become desperate for the power of God. Where I think we need to land each and every day is that we're desperate for God's power because we realize that our power is limited. Okay, maybe maybe yours isn't. Maybe you have some kind of special power up here in North Dakota that we don't have in Oklahoma. As a university president, I literally fall on my knees every morning and say, God, I'm fully dependent on you. I'm depending on your supernatural power. I cannot do this by myself. That'd be a good prayer for all of us to pray. This is what the widow is sort of praying by going to the holy man. And she was going to lose everything, literally, But the key here is she knew who to turn to. She knew what the source was of all sources that could help her. There are statistics today that will prove that people will go to magic, they will go to alien sources today. Right now, they're turning to artificial intelligence for truth today instead of going to God. And the lesson here, right off the get go in this passage, is. When is the last time that I needed so much help even to do today, to get through today, that I desperately cry out to God, God, would you help me? God, would you save me? God, would you deliver me? That is an appropriate prayer for the 21st century church. You don't have to go back to 2 Kings. But this is the example of the widow. She knew where to turn to. And she said, God, even to the holy man, would you help me? Am I desperately crying out for the Lord's help? Will you do that even for the next generation? you say, oh they're they're headed in the wrong direction they're bound for hell they're they're going to ruin our country, they're going to ruin the church. what what if you desperately cried out for God to move in our young adults today? I do that. I, I've done that for years I my mother did that for me, but there were other people in the church that I grew up in that, that they would say something to me like on a Sunday morning after church, you're, you're going to be awesome. And then they'd use this little word, someday. They knew I wasn't awesome right then. They didn't know that I had soaked the windows of their cars and put a potato up their tailpipe in the parking lot during church. But they had something inside of them that could believe, like somebody believed in them, that they could be somebody that would be godly, that somebody that, that would represent Christ, that would preach the word. And and those kinds of encouraging words to a young adult today mean the world, you remember? Do you remember somebody believing in you? Somebody's coming into your mind right now. Could have been a pastor. Could have been a parent. Could have been somebody that was just a layperson in the church. They believed in you. Are you desperate for the Lord's help, whatever the need might be? The second question I might ask is, do I trust in God's provision? The widow had nothing, she answered to Elisha, except a small jar of olive oil. This particular jar would probably be for something she would save to anoint maybe her body or her son's bodies in death. It probably wasn't enough. It doesn't say how many ounces it was. I'm going to say it's six ounces. You say, I think it was eight. You decide how many ounces. If it's a big gulp, it's not enough to live on. It's not enough to produce the kind of bread and and feed that she would need to be able to survive on. All I have. Elisha asks her, what do you have in your house? All I have is a small jar of olive oil. And what she was saving, perhaps, to be an anointing oil in death, God was going to use to bring about life. You you did celebrate the resurrection here. It did snow, I understand. So you had a frozen resurrection. Okay, but you celebrated the resurrection and we live in the resurrection. The resurrection isn't the end of Christianity. It's the beginning of Christianity. That Jesus has the power over Satan, sin, hell, and death. And now we can trust in His provision. You say, that was clear back in Second Kings. You're not doing it in the chronological order. Listen, God is God. He's always been God. And He's always had the power to do the miracle, to do the supernatural. Do you desperately believe that? Well, if you were sick, you would. If you needed something, you would. This widow needed something. What's significant here is that oil in the Scriptures has always represented God's power. It's always represented its power. An old term for the use of oil in the Old Testament, including the New Testament, is the word unction. Unction. Not junction. Not conjunction. But unction. There is this use of oil that always represented God's power. In the book of James, you'll read in chapter 5 that if somebody's sick, they're supposed to call for the elders of the church to anoint them with oil. And it says, this is a fascinating passage you can study with me after a while, or if this sermon's boring enough, you can do it right now. James chapter 5, anoint them with oil their sins will be forgiven. Think about that kind of power. The greatest power is the forgiveness of sin, and they will be healed. Interesting. Well, I've been anointed. I, I've anointed people. Some of them weren't healed. Well, that's my definition of healing. What's God's? But this widow's going to trust this provision. It's going to trust really what she saved for death to bring about life. She literally had nothing but a small jar Of olive oil. You may think you have nothing. You may think that you have very little. But I'm here to tell you, and I could still hear my mother, a soprano, in church singing it. Little is much when God is in it. You're not supposed to labor for wealth or fame, the song says. There's a prize and you can win it. If you go in Jesus' name, I I still remember my mother, I can hear her now singing that song. I'm not a soprano, so I'm not going to put you through that. But even if you have a little bit of God, a little bit of faith, you have enough for God to work with. You say, no, I don't know. I I don't know. I heard you're supposed to give it all. She gave it all. That's all she had. And that's the point. Do I trust in God's provision with everything that He's given me? Will I actually realize that He owns that? That He has developed that? That He has allowed that? And He owns everything, every part of me, including if it's just a little bit. I think sometimes there are people inside the church, maybe even outside the church, that think they have to have a lot. In order to make some kind of contribution to God, uh, I'm not here to talk to you about money. I'm here here to talk to you about your life. My money's secondary. Your ability secondary. Your career is secondary. Uh, I don't care what kind of fancy title you have. It, it's secondary. I don't care how many degrees you have. Those are secondary. That God has allowed those things in your life, and will you allow Him to utilize everything that you have? What do you have? The widow trusted the holy man in this instruction, knowing that little is much when God is in it. The third question is a tough one today, and that is, will I obey? Will I obey? Obedience isn't talked about a lot today, is it? Unless you're a dog. Right? Dogs go to obedience school. I personally think that Christians should go to obedience school. Will I obey? When God tells me to do something, will I obey? When he prompts me to do something, will I obey? The widow here was told to go and collect jars, to go in with her sons and close the door and get these jars, which would have been a commodity. It would be like kind of borrowing your truck today or your trailer today, and people are just supposed to give it. I mean, think about how God is at work in this story, in this historical account of God's power at work in people's lives, and whatever the container is today, I doubt it's Tupperware these days, but anyway, whatever it is that can carry something that's worth something, oil was traded on the market. You could use it like money. It it was the, the Old Testament Bitcoin, if you will. They would be able to buy anything and trade anything for oil it was a high costly kind of commodity and these jars that their neighbors had would have been needed to carry their own oil to carry their own grain and the, and the, the holy man tells this widow go tell your sons to go to all of the neighbors don't ask for just a few get as many jars as you can go back to your house close the door and start pouring that makes no sense why? Why would I need a big jar, or twenty of them, or fifty of them, however many they were? Let's just go for it. Why would I need to go collect fifty-five gallon drums when all I have is six ounces of olive oil? You've lost your mind, Elisha. She doesn't question that. Well, I think she did underneath the text. Well, let's just stay above the text, not to judge it, but let's just get right up on the surface of it, right inside of it. She has a small jar of olive oil. That's all she has. Why is she collecting all of these jars? Why would you go in and close the door with your sons? And why, why would you just start pouring It makes sense to me that if you have six ounces of olive oil and you pour it into a bigger jar, you still have six ounces of olive oil. You probably have five, because I don't know how you get all the olive oil out of there without a spatula. But anyway, you still have the same amount of olive oil, don't you, Elisha? What's wrong with you? She simply obeyed. Uh, you might be asking, yourself, well, what else is she going to do? She has nothing else, which is fair, but it still made no sense. She just did what the representative of God in her day was telling her to do. What, what do we do? We Okay, what do I do? I'm from Oklahoma. I'm not, I'm not near as close to God because you go north and that's heaven. But anyway, I want to rationalize things. I want them to make sense. I have to defend to accreditors even this evening and tomorrow and Tuesday that, that we are rational at Oklahoma Wesleyan University. I, I ought to tell them this story in the middle of their accreditation interview, shouldn't I? We believe in the supernatural. We're going to obey God. Do you? Well, I've got to, I've got to hold on to a little bit. I'll tell you what, I'll go in with three ounces of olive oil. I'll, I'll pour three. I'm going to keep three. No, she obeyed. She and her sons begged for every jar they could get their hands on. She kept pouring. Did you read the text? Each jar was filled. I don't know how many they collected. I'm pretty sure it's quite a few. I don't know how big they were. I'm pretty sure it's bigger than the jar of oil she had. She kept pouring, and she kept pouring. And she kept pouring. She didn't even stop the process and come out and and get on Facebook and make a post and a selfie with Sharon and her two sons. Like, hey, look at us. We're pouring oil out of six ounces into all these 55 gallons. She didn't stop. She didn't open the door. She kept pouring and she kept pouring and she kept pouring. She gave God everything that she had. And she believed God. She obeyed God. And she kept pouring. And the oil didn't run out. Did you catch it? Until the last jar was filled. This, my friends, is nothing short of a miracle of the power of God. So if you could live in miracle territory with God's resurrection power in your life, will you obey? Well, I don't know, God. I, I don't think that works that way. I don't think oil pours that way. I really don't think that you're able to meet all of my needs. Obedience is a lost art in the Christian walk today. What did Jesus impress you to do? What did He inspire you to do? What is it that is beyond you? Maybe even that doesn't make sense. I don't think God is always outside of logic. He created logic. But will you obey is the question beyond your rational thoughts. There are things in my life that I've obeyed God with that make no sense. One of them is in the position that I'm in today. I don't have the pedigree to be in the position I'm in today. I felt like God wanted me to do it. I went through the process. I don't know how to spell words like matriculation and articulation. And all of these academic words, I, I have to learn a lot. But God's helping us. And when universities are shrinking today, ours is growing, and we're very grateful for the provision of God, and we're just trying to obey. You say, well, what about all the pressures? I'll get to those in a second. The question today is, am I desperate for God's help, and am I trusting in His provision, and will I obey? Or, frankly, am I in charge? There's a fourth question that comes. It's the last one in case you're wondering how long this is going to go. Do I have the tenacity to stay focused? When God asks me to do something, do I try it for a day and give up? Well, it didn't work. I'm going to go on Easter Sunday to Cornerstone Community and see if I feel the presence of the Lord. And if Pastor Keith can't help me to feel the presence of the Lord, I try. Maybe I'll come back at Christmas. I'm speaking to the wrong crowd. I get that. But do you understand that, that we don't have very much tenacity? Something happens. Well, Jesus doesn't love me anymore and I'm out. We don't have the tenacity. It's called faithfulness in the Bible. In case you're wondering where tenacity comes from, go in and close the door. Have you ever considered that God's ridiculous blessings may be directly related to relentless focus? It's not always. That's why this isn't a doctrinal passage. Will I focus? You know, the word repent literally means to turn. It means to turn. It's a 180 degree turn, not a 360. If this is the way of the world and this is the way of the cross, that I've asked Jesus to forgive my sin, I've repented of my sin, I've, I've turned my back on the way of sin, and now I'm supposed to be directly pointed and heading toward the cross. It's not this dance, it's not this ballerina where you turn back around and say something like in circles, if that's the way of the world and this is Jesus and His forgiveness and repentance, hey glad I made a deal with you. I'll catch up with you later. I've got some living to do. I'm going to stay in the way of the world. That's not true repentance. That is something where we need the power of God to offer His forgiveness through His crucifixion, through His resurrection, through the power that He has today. For us to stay in the direction of the cross, that is what true repentance means. That's what it means when we say a Christian needs to have tenacity. Repent Sentence is 180, my friends. It's not 360. We're either headed in the world's direction or we're headed in the direction of Jesus. There's no side turns. But what do we do? We find ourselves turning around like a ballerina. I know it's hard to imagine that I'm a ballerina, but just go with me for a second. And We just keep turning circles, we keep turning circles, and when all of a sudden we find ourselves turning our back on God instead of turning our back on sin. This is what holiness is all about. It's relationship, its direction. It's not a transaction where you just say, Hey, thanks, big guy. Really look forward to seeing you someday. I'm gonna keep living the way that I thought I should live. Will you obey? Do you have the tenacity to stay focused? It made no sense other than by God's power. When will we turn a phrase in our lives from never to not yet? That will never happen. Well, what if God gets inside of that? Well, that person would never be forgiven. I mean, you know what they do. All All of Bismarck knows what they do. What if we said not yet? Well, somebody said not yet to you when they shared the gospel with you. Do you even have the tenacity in your witness to share others with others about Jesus Christ? Let's listen to what happened in this story. She went back to Elisha, she had all of these jars full of olive oil, and the holy man said to her, Go sell it pay off your debts remember she still owes a lot of debt it was going to cause her to lose her sons for who knows how long sell it pay off your debts i love this last phrase you and your sons live on the rest so a big deal listen it doesn't say your sons need to go back to work It doesn't say that you should worry about God's provision in your life ever again. It literally says, I am a God of abundance. I am not a God of scarcity. And if you will obey, if you will trust me, say, I don't know, Jim. I don't know if that's true in my life. Listen, even if it's the abundance of heaven that's given to you because you follow Jesus in obedience down here, could it be that you could live on the rest of what God has for you? If that doesn't get some gooses on your bump, then your bump isn't goosable, I'm pretty sure. Or something like that. This is powerful, working, miracle territory of God. And it's available. So you obviously don't understand. Maybe everything's gone your way. I've had to trust when I didn't even have a jar of olive oil. Have you? I've had to ask God to help me get through pain when I didn't know if I could. I'm here to tell you that giving your life fully to Jesus is worth it. And now you're in miracle territory. Let me talk to you a little bit about some of the things that come my way in what I do today. I I get these questions all the time. Aren't you worried about this woke culture? I I am, but I'd rather frame it this way. I'm awake to what God can do if we focus on him. Well, aren't you worried about the sexual dysphoria of young adults? I, I am. It's not all of them, by the way. Very few of them, actually. But regardless, we can talk about in the lobby if you want statistics today. I, I'd rather focus on this. I am a person of Wesleyan theology that believes in optimistic grace. And optimistic grace says this, no one, Despite their sin, no one is beyond the grip of God. Amen? Let me let me make sure you're still warmed up. Optimistic grace means that you believe that Jesus can save and change anyone despite their sin. He did it for you, didn't He? If He didn't yet, let's do it today. Will you obey Him? Will you trust Him? Will you repent and follow Him? Optimistic grace means that no one no one in your family, no one at your workplace, no one at your school, no one even at your church, no one in all of North Dakota or North America or the whole wide world is beyond the grip of God. Amen? Amen. you kind of warmed up. It's okay. I'm, I'm getting ready to go. Aren't you worried, Jim, about government in-reach? Aren't they going to ruin your school? I, we watch it. I have lawyers that watch it. I'm not worried about that. You know what I'm worried about? I'm worried about the reach of the gospel. That's what I'm worried about. I, I'm worried that, that we're still telling people that Jesus saves. I, I'm not going to put my trust in something that's not going to last. I, I'm not going to put my trust in in politics. I'm I'm not going to put my trust in, in some kind of policy. I, I'm not going to put my trust in somebody that wants to pressure us outside of our faith statements. I, I'm not going to focus on that. I'm not going to worry about it. We're aware of it. We understand it. We know that religious liberty is a thing and it threatens our schools and our churches and all of us, frankly. But I'm not going to focus on that. I'm going to focus on the fact that the clock is ticking and people need Jesus and the good news needs to reach the entire world before Jesus comes back again. Amen? What are you tenacious about? What are you focused on? You say, well, you're naive. I might be. But I'm just telling you, I'm going to tell the world what I'm for. I'm against a bunch of stuff, biblically. A bunch of stuff. But I'm going to tell the world what I'm for. Uh, I want that Proverbs verse to be real, that, that words fitly spoken are like apples and jars of honey and gold said, so no, you need to tell them what you're against. What if you started the conversation with what you're for? What are you talking about? I'm um, for life. What kind? All of it. God intended to have a relationship with every person. As my four-year-old, who's now a 28-year-old pastor in Delaware, put it one night before he went to bed, he uh, he he just uh, was you know a sermon illustration in a box for me as a young pastor. And I asked him, his name's Caleb. I said, Caleb, what do you think God created us for? And this is what he said right away. Because he was bored. (laughs) He wanted a friend. I love it for a four-year-old. He's still preaching that today. Listen, am I tenacious in the fact that people are lost? Well, I'm found and I don't care about the lost. Be careful. Please be careful. You were lost. I don't want you to dwell on it today. But in your foundness, don't forget your lostness. Please. What gets you riled up? What gets you tenacious? What gets your focus? What gets your attention? The widow, she could have kept her small jar of olive oil. I don't know what the results would be. She could have she could have said, "Ah, Elisha, he's he's full of beans." I'm not doing it. She could have. But she did what the representative of God in her day told her to do. What she saved for death brought life without labor for her and her boys. Tell me, Elisha said, what do you have? that you could offer to God. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen.